I'm Bill Radke. This is Subtext, What Goes Unsaid. I started to feel complicit in my silence, that I don't consent for there to be silence around this issue. We've been talking on this podcast about having the courage to speak up. Jessica Webb was listening. She took that idea of speaking up personally, and she took it pretty far. We're going to meet her later. First, let's start by acknowledging something. Sometimes it's really hard to speak up, particularly when you get the message that your voice is unwelcome. On our broadcast show, Soundside, I was telling the host, Libby Denkman, that my dad used to tell me to shut my mouth, and to this day, I'm self-conscious about hearing myself talk, which I realize is ironic for a radio host. Well, that touched a nerve for several people who wrote to me to tell me they got told to shut up, too. Debbie Turk remembers being a child driving to Washington State from Indianapolis in the back of a hatchback Vega. Her stepdad was in the front. I remember at some point, I think it was in Montana or something, he looked over at me in the back of the car and said, Debbie, you should be seen and not heard. Stop talking. Ever since then, whenever I was in a public setting of some sort or a family setting, that I would always feel this incredible um, blushing that would take over my physique. Like my neck would go red, my decolletage would go red, My face would go red and I would try to express what I was wanting to say, but I was always very kind of afraid that my voice didn't make any sense, you know, or it shouldn't be heard or it was wrong. It was hard to be told that I should be seen and not heard. And what did that even mean? Like, I I just exist, but I'm not a voice or I don't know what that actually meant. It was very hard to comprehend as a child. As the family I was forming, I had two young children and a husband. We lived in Bellingham. I had a thriving career. But yet every time I knew he was going to come up to visit with my mother, I would become very nervous. I just had to safeguard my children from him saying something that might silence their own voices. But I don't think I actually understood that. But it was at some point in my 40s that I kind of woke up and smelled the coffee and realized this guy doesn't know what the hell, I mean, he doesn't speak for me, and I needed to find my own voice. Thank you for telling me your story, Debbie. I'm not alone. So yes, speaking up can be hard. And sometimes that keep quiet message comes from your parents. Other times it feels like it comes from everyone, from our whole society. That's something Steph Iketa has struggled with. Steph and I met up at Hinghei Park in Seattle's Chinatown International District by the pavilion and the table tennis games, and we discussed what Steph calls their parents' age-old East Asian tradition of never speaking openly about personal things. That definitely includes Steph's identity, which they describe as somewhere at the intersection of asexual, queer, and non-binary. Steph says their parents had the typical Asian-American dream of their kids getting good grades and being successful. I realized later that's like, it's even more than that. Like, they wanted me to own a house. They wanted me to get married, uh, you know, in a heterosexual way. They wanted me to, 
you know, do have grandkids, do X, Y, and Z. It wasn't just about education. And I think that's part of the thing that Asian, that like us Asian kids also experience is that along with that dream of like education and success, they also envision a life for us that's very, you know, heteronormative, that's very confining in a way and is their definition of success and not necessarily ours. Um, and that's what makes it hard to tell them like when we're deviating from our ex when we're deviating from their expectations, when I'm deviating from my mom's expectations, it's really hard for me to tell her that. And I think that adds, that kind of adds to like the silence both ways. What do you think your parents' take on being queer was before this came up between you? For my parents, it's something that they tolerate, but they don't necessarily encourage. I do know I do know other Asian parents who have reacted much worse, like they've stopped talking to their kids or like temporarily stopped talking to them or like cried or just, you know, like haven't had a good reaction. And my parents have not been that severe, but they also kind of just would rather not talk about it. Like I said, like they would rather just like, um, like all the other emotions and things, they would just rather, you know, not talk about it, keep it like, keep it to yourself and just kind of not, not acknowledge it in any way, which is also hurtful. And like, I almost feel like they're afraid of it. Like they're afraid of me or my brother talking about it. They're afraid of talking about it to other people. Like they don't want to tell other people. They just kind of want to hide it and they would rather just like shove it in a box and in a closet. <laughs> so like, I, I don't feel like I'm closeted, but I almost feel like my parents would prefer that I was. And that's kind of where I feel like the silence of culture also comes in. How did you break the silence with your parents around your queer identity? I really haven't. I've only brought it up a couple of times. Um, I haven't told my mom about my personal life very much since I moved to Seattle and I don't really feel like it's necessary to. I'm a pretty private person in general, which makes it interesting that, I, that I'm going on this podcast and talking about my personal life. But I do want to speak for like other people who have been in similar situations um, that like, yeah, I know it's hard. And like, I've tried to kind of bring it up in other situations and make my parents aware of, of these things. Um, they haven't necessarily changed their behavior, but at least they know. So yeah, I feel like I feel like we're kind of in this awkward phase of like they they know I'm not straight. They know they're not going to get you know the heteronormative 2.5 kids with a white picket fence that they wanted, um, and they're not like outwardly upset about it at me, <laughs> um, but they also aren't you know, they're not like welcoming or encouraging either. So it's kind of this weird middle, awkward middle ground where no, they're not going to cut me off. They're not going to throw a fit, but they also aren't, they aren't excited about it. They don't really care. It just feels like they don't really care. Have you considered forcing the issue more, being more direct and saying, we are go we're going to talk or how have you made that decision? At one point I sort of did that with my, with, asking my mom to change the pronoun she uses for me from she, her, to they, them. And I actually like emailed her a bunch of information in advance and told her to, told her to read it before we talked <laughs> because I just knew she didn't have any background on this in general. And then we did talk and she, she was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, I think all the things that you sent me to read make sense. And like this identity really like fits kind of who you are 
And I was like, great, that went really well. But then she didn't change her pronoun, the pronouns that she used. I kind of was like, okay, why are you not doing this? And she's like, well, I need time to get used to it. But like more time passed and she just like didn't really change it. And then she saw me like writing my pronouns when I was job hunting on my resume and all of that. And she was like, she was like, oh, I'm, she's like, I'm sorry, I'm trying. I, I haven't been doing it. And I'm like, I like didn't even know what to say. I was just like, uh, it's okay, I guess. <laughs> even though it wasn't okay, I was just kind of like, what am, what else am I supposed to say in this situation? And that's something that comes up for a lot of people who get misgendered. Like, the other person will kind of be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Like, to the point where you feel like you have to forgive them. Like, you know, I think it's normal for people to be like, oh yeah, sorry, I messed up. Like, that's totally fine. I'm like, I do that with other people. But when it gets to the point where the person says they're sorry, but they're obviously not going to change. That's what I, that's where I felt like, you know, maybe it's, I, I came out with this really strong thing and like, I had this clear discussion with her, but nothing changed. So if you're not doing it for your parents or whatever, like then you're doing it for yourself and you're like, okay, at least I, you know, I tried to do what I could and tried to stand up for myself. So that's, that's where I was coming from. Like, even though my mom didn't change her behavior, at least I, I gave her all the information. I told her this is what's happening. And, you know, she just chose to do what she's going to do. Has your realization about the cost of silence, do, do you think it's made you less silent in other ways, just in general? Oh, yeah. Like, I think, um, <laughs> I've, I feel like I've become, I've become a much different person than I was back when I lived at home with my parents and I've definitely become less silent about things. Uh, it's still, it's still a process like standing up for myself and making myself heard. But yeah, I would, I would definitely say I'm not as silent as I was like, even when I wrote the essay, um, even, you know, before, before 2020, like 2020 was a huge year for me just with the pandemic, um, the protests and everything, just like finding my voice and, um, no, realizing how important it was for me to speak out about things uh, and like injustices that I see, injustices that I experience, um, things that affect me and that affect the people around me. So I, I, yeah, I would say I've, I've learned to be less silent over the years. What's another example of that? How you found your voice on something? I would say a big one was working at a white-led institution um, during the, during the pan, at the beginning of the pandemic and also during the Black Lives Matter protests, um, just like s realizing how important it was for my voice to be heard and just like that, that like, that like upswell of anger I felt kind of at these injustices, I really felt that was like a huge like eye opener for me. Like, like I can't be silent. Like I, or like I don't want to be silent actually. Um, and just like wanting to speak out like to the leadership of this organization, like to people I knew who were ignorant or like didn't understand, um, you know, like racial injustice or homophobia or any of that. Like they just like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't part of their consciousness <laughs> before all this happened. And just like realizing how important it is to just like talk about these things and keep and have them out in the open. Do you feel like this, this, you call it an age old East Asian tradition, it's, do you feel that that's bad and the more American or Western kind of uh, culture of openness is good? Or is it more complicated than that? 
it's much more complicated. Yeah, when I say that the the tradition of silence is bad, I'm not saying like I'm definitely not saying that one culture is better than the other. Like there's definitely problems with the way Western culture approaches things, I think, and I don't think it's and I think there's definitely ways for me to honor my heritage without necessarily conforming to you know, the more oppressive facets of it. And I think the same can be said of Western culture. Like there's, there's ways that Western culture doesn't want me to speak up either, you know, as an Asian, um, as, as, a, as a genderqueer person, like Western, Western culture does not want to hear from me. Um, how, how do you feel so, that yeah. Steph? I just feel like, I mean, in Western, in West, in modern Western culture and in modern East Asian society, like I feel like both things are very, heterosexual, very patriarchal. Um, I feel like just because Western society maybe talks more about feelings or, or cares more about feelings overall, or like it's more acceptable to talk about feelings, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that they want someone like me to talk about my feelings. In the Japanese American community, my colleagues, I feel, did not understand my queerness and they didn't really want to talk about it either they can understand someone being like cisgender and gay maybe or like you know one thing or the other mm -hmm. but they couldn't really understand like the like the nuances of how of how i identify so when i tried to like come out and explain i felt like i was just getting blank stares and that's kind of the point when i felt like oh like i am not really being like seen or heard about this here it was really difficult because i i had felt really affirmed kind of as an asian and i had really found my identity as a japanese american through this work so it was really it was a really big wake-up call to feel that only one side of me was being accepted at a time and i couldn't show up as my whole self you said you feel like your peers maybe your generation is forging um, a new communication a new understanding do you do you see things changing? I do. I mean, from my perspective, things have changed a lot. I really thank you for bringing up, like, this isn't about, like, Eastern versus Western culture. Actually, the more I've embraced my culture, the less I've felt that I want to be silent. Just because I've met so many more people who, and heard about so many more, like, people much younger than me who feel more comfortable being who they are. You know, with the anti-trans bills coming up and just, like, seeing the student protests, like, knowing young people, uh, my friend, you know, even my friend's kids who have felt comfortable enough to come out to their parents and experiment with their gender identity and their, and their queerness. Like that just gives me so much hope and seeing the way that my friends parent their kids and allowing them to be who they are and not, not trying to restrain them or tell them to be silent. That gives me a lot of hope that things are changing. I think we're trying to make that for everyone not just the people that maybe our parents wanted us to be. That's the most important thing that I want to say is that we're creating a culture where everyone is welcome, like regardless of your identity, how you feel about it, whether you're ready or not, you know, it's here. It's here and it's waiting for them. That's Steph Iketa carving out their own way of speaking up, a new way. Steph wrote an eloquent essay a few years ago in the International Examiner. It's titled, We Didn't Talk About It, Moving Beyond a Culture of Silence. We'll link to that in our show notes. Steph's experiences with silence and speaking up raise a thorny question. Once you've decided to speak up, how do you know the person you're talking to is really listening to you? Here's an idea. Turn your conversation into a game. That's coming up right after the break. 
This podcast series has been about what we don't say, and I've been asking how you manage to have difficult conversations. Here's an intriguing answer from a listener named Jonathan Tweet. Jonathan is in a dialogue group at his Unitarian Church. They host civil discussions on divisive issues. And to do that, Jonathan uses his background as a game designer. He told me why a productive conversation is kind of like a role-playing game. Well, a game is a set of rules that uh, people agree to follow that um, they wouldn't necessarily have to follow if they were, you know, just doing what they felt like doing. And the idea is that the rules get developed in order to facilitate a certain kind of process or a certain kind of uh, experience. So in that way, you know, it's a it's a structured social interaction. So it's sort of like a game. How do you use a, a game design type approach to yeah. get people to speak up? Yeah, exactly. So the one uh, technique that everything I've been doing really has been founded on is something called looping. It's where uh, you say something that presents your viewpoint and my responsibility as your your partner in the dialogue is to paraphrase it back to you in my own words. And so before I give my own position or ask critical questions, we established that I really understood you in the first place. Like I, you don't just repeat the other person's words. You put it in, in your own words. So the, so the listener knows, okay, you're not just parroting me. You really do get what I said. That That is right. It is remarkable how difficult it is. That's one of the most astounding things that I have learned uh, in the last eight years doing this work is people who are intelligent and well-meaning and articulate often have a real difficulty simply understanding and paraphrasing something that someone else said if they don't agree with it. If they agree with it, they understand it and they can paraphrase it really easily. But if they disagree with it, I don't, honestly, I'm flummoxed. I'm no expert. I don't know why it's so difficult, but, but it is. I've seen people, people who are smart and educated and articulate be unable to paraphrase something back. And a lot of times, most times people can do it, but almost never on the first try, right? And so a lot of the process in this thing called looping um, is sort of a back and forth where now you know what I heard and you know what I got wrong. And now you can give your position again and give me another chance to, to understand it. And when that goes right, the people who start disagreeing with each other, they end up still disagreeing with each other, but each of them feels like they've really been heard. And that doesn't happen a lot in um, discussions of hot button topics. And so I, I have, I have found that really encouraging. And there are lots of other things that people can do uh, to improve dialogue. But this looping technique is the one that seems golden. Yeah, when when here this podcast is about what goes unsaid. And it occurs to me while you're talking, most people think, oh, s- say it out loud, speak up. They're yeah. thinking, say your, I should say my truth. Yes. But, but it's not just that. It's, gee, can you speak up and say somebody else's truth? Yeah, that that's a really good way to put it. That's right. I think we all do need to say our truths or our version of the truth or our take on things. Um, and I don't think everyone has all the answers. And I know I'm wrong about uh, some things. And so 
I understand a position better if I'm able to also say somebody else's truth. You said people are still going to disagree. And I, I, I was going to ask you that. Do you think the act of even just paraphrasing what the other person said, that even though you disagree, do you think that if you can accurately portray what what that person is thinking, whether you like it or not, in that act, is there something that softens your position a little bit? Or maybe you didn't just repeat it. You actually kind of can can see where they're coming from, as Monica said, and, and you do come a little closer together to some agreements. I think there is some of that. Like I heard one of my friends who went through the process, he said he could feel the cognitive dissonance in his own head, almost like a physical force, because he was in this tight situation of hearing something that he disagreed with, but having to listen to it openly so that he would be able to paraphrase it. And that does put you in a very different position. Now, I've never seen anybody like changing their mind about abortion or whatever like that. That's not going to happen in one session. But uh, but for sure, nobody's going to no one's going to listen to what you have to say unless they know that you've listened to what they're saying and you're really speaking to them. If you look at a lot of online conversation, people are just talking past each other all the time. There's, it, it's, and it's super frustrating. And so the, the looping process slows everything down and, and the conversation is a lot slower, but it's a lot cooler. Oh, we could use more of that, couldn't we? Slower, cooler conversations. As Jonathan said, slow and cool are hard to find lately, especially on social media. Not a lot of looping going on there. Maybe that's because a lot of people posting online are not really interested in listening to each other. You know them. They're the trolls, the virtue signalers, the reply guys. There are plenty of them on Twitter and Facebook, which is why this next listener's story surprised me. Jessica Webb says after hearing me talk about difficult conversations, she decided to use Facebook to start one of the most difficult conversations of her life. It's still a little hard to talk about. Um, for me, I, I had an abortion two years ago, and um, it's something that I've heard a lot of people talking about in a very theoretical way. Uh, for me, I started to feel complicit in my silence, that I don't consent for there to be silence around this issue. What did you decide to do? <clears throat> the way I envisioned it was kind of just putting out like a Facebook post, something that um, I just sat down and, and wrote it. And I don't know if I reread it again. Uh, <laughs> it just was it just needed to come out and it just sort of did. And I posted it. I would have assumed that you would have agonized over this. I thought I would, too. Um, and in fact, once I started, I just it just all sort of fell out. Jessica, would you mind reading that Facebook post for us? Sure. Friends, family, everyone, I want you to know I had an abortion. People have been talking about this topic a lot, and I have been sitting to the side feeling like I can't talk about my experience of it. I don't want to be silent anymore. I do not feel shame. I do not feel regret. I don't feel the need to justify my decision, but if you want to know the story, here it is. We knew we could not support a third child. We had just barely enough at the time to support two. 
So we talked it over and over and over again, and we kept coming to the conclusion that it would be too hard on our family to go through with this pregnancy. And we were completely heartbroken. And eventually they gave me two pills, and I took them, and then we went home. And I cried, and I cried, and uh, that was it. Nick and I named her uh, Lyriel, and uh, we mourned her in our own way. I know at least half a dozen women who've had abortions. There are probably more I don't know about. You probably do too, even if you don't know it. Most women who have abortions are like me, women who've already had children. It wasn't the result of reckless youth or promiscuity or whatever it is that people think about women who need abortions. Uh, in my view, it doesn't matter how the pregnancy happened, though. Um, what matters is that we allow women the right to control what happens to their bodies. I'm also sad for all the women who will soon be trapped in pregnancies they don't want or can't have for whatever reason, uh, because they won't be allowed to make the decision for themselves. I'm also sad for those who will become injured or die trying to meet their needs uh, when there are no safe ways to do so. You may disagree with my decision and my views, but please know abortion will happen whether you agree with it or not. Abortion will happen whether it's legal or not. Abortion is a complex issue, and that's okay. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. And I'm here if you want to talk. After I posted it, I read what I wrote, and I felt better. I felt like I said what I wanted to say, and it felt lighter to have said it. Jessica, I, I want to know what you thought would happen when you mm -hmm. sent that, and then what actually did happen. Before we talk about that, would you mind if I ask you a little bit about your post? Sure. What you chose to write? Yeah. Why did you decide to make it clear that you were not being reckless or promiscuous maybe it's just me maybe it's not but i feel that there is a certain um idea about uh how women get into situations where they would need an abortion um there are folks who would criticize the idea of abortion as saying it's uh your first method of birth control i i don't think that's necessarily true for most women who have abortions and so uh, I wanted to make it clear that 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 doesn't fit me. Because some people might say it doesn't matter how it happened, how the pregnancy happened. Mm -hmm. I I would agree with that statement. I don't think it matters how the pregnancy happened. So how did you expect your Facebook friends to react, and how and what were you hoping for? I expected there to be a whole gamut of responses. Knowing who a lot of these, you know, knowing who my Facebook friends are, um, a lot of them are family who are religious, and I definitely expected to see some pushback or some negativity, or um, I was worried that maybe people would say, you're a murderer and a monster, and I wanted to, I think I, I wanted to feel prepared for that eventuality. I definitely thought it would start a conversation, um, or I hoped it would start a conversation. I ended my post with, I'm here to talk, to invite people to converse with me about it. Um, but you didn't say, I want to talk. I didn't. 
It was more like, I'm here, <laughs> if. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, not everybody wants to talk about it. I don't have any illusions that one Facebook post would change that for everybody, but um, I wanted people to know that you can do it. And this is what it might look like. So people reacted how? With overwhelming support and love and compassion. Uh, there were no negative comments. Uh, there were no angry faces. There were a lot of sort of those like care hugs um, mm. of, you know, I think I felt heard and accepted and I didn't expect it to be quite so overwhelmingly positive what does that say to you um it could be a few things it could be that I'm seeing the effects of the bubble that I've surrounded myself with like-minded folks and uh Maybe the people who don't like to see what I post haven't, aren't following me. How would you feel about that if that's true? I mean, that's fine with me. You don't mind being in the bubble? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's a complex issue in and of itself. But in the case of this, uh, no, I didn't particularly mind. I wasn't, you know, sort of going out to, to start a ruckus. Um, this was really for me to open up and see if people would talk with me about it but they didn't nope they just posted a lot of support and i think it was because of just the sadness i expressed in my post um yeah i think my post was mostly about that yeah that's true and they care mm -hmm. is there someone in your facebook friend group who you're pretty sure is at least unhappy if not upset uh, yeah, I have an extended family member who we're, um, who my family is close with, and I'm. she's uh, politically quite conservative, and I'm pretty sure that if she knew, uh, she would be very disapproving. Um, I'm not sure what the result would be of that for us socially, and I didn't see her reaction to my post. Are you close? <clears throat> uh, yeah, we see each other fairly regularly. Um, yeah, she's there for our family and our kids. My kids adore her. We adore her. <laughs> uh, we get along pretty well, and she's. we just don't talk about politics at all. And that sort of keeps the peace. I'm, yeah, I'm certain if she knew, she would not, she would not be happy to hear it. Well, there's a pretty good chance she knows now, and you're going to see her. <laughs> Sounds like you're, she's in your life. Um, yeah, I mean, if she wants to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it. I think I'll leave it up to her. I really think that for me, this was sort of the beginning of the conversation. This is the sort of start to it. Um, I think just to open up and let people know that this is a thing we could talk about. If people knew the scope and the scale of how many people they know and love are affected by this issue that maybe they wouldn't be so quick to judge kind of like 
Uh, if you get cut off in traffic by somebody, you might be really mad. But if you imagine that person is your grandma, maybe you're not quite so mad. You're willing to give people a little bit more leeway and benefit of the doubt if they are someone that you know and care about and are part of your group. They're not other. They're not strangers. They're not anonymous. I wanted my post to be personal and real um, so that people would understand that this is a, a personal and real issue and that it is complex and that complex things are okay to talk about. Complex things are okay to talk about. That's the unofficial motto of this podcast. I started this series because people talk a lot. We talk so much that it can feel like we're airing everything out. But as you've heard, we keep a lot unsaid. And that comes at a cost. Hiding a problem means not solving that problem. Unfortunately, speaking out can have a cost as well if you're not in power, which is why when someone does raise their voice, it's so important that we listen. Honestly, I didn't really consider listening when I started this project about what goes unsaid. It turns out saying stuff is just the beginning. I only had half a concept. The people I met here made me realize how hard it is to listen to something uncomfortable and how vital it is. People who speak their truth aren't just spouting. They're saying, listen, I have this experience. I want to tell you about it and listen to what you have to say. And then let's see what we can do together. So in that spirit, I really thank you for listening. This is the final episode of Subtext. Now I invite you to stick around for the next series in KUOW Shorts. It's called The Blue Suit, and it's hosted by local poet Shinyi Pai. The Blue Suit is about our emotional kinship with everyday objects and how commonplace things can transform from the mundane into the remarkable. Xinyi will introduce you to artists, activists, thinkers, and community leaders, and the relics that they invest with meaning. Episodes of The Blue Suit begin July 11th, so stay tuned. Subtext was written and hosted by me, Bill Radke. This episode was edited by Jeannie Yandel and sound designed by Hans Twite. Alex Rochester is KUOW's Digital Community Outreach Coordinator. Melissa Takai designed our logo and artwork. Michaela Giannotti is KUOW's Director of Marketing. Brendan Sweeney is Director of New Content. Zeki Hamid directs Community Engagement for the station. Jennifer Strachan is KUOW's Chief Content Officer. Thanks again for listening. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.